0: The Gospel for the Resurrection of Our Lord comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. You can find it on page 722 of the Pew Bible. In this Gospel lesson, Jesus, well, Jesus doesn't show up. He's not where he's supposed to be. Please stand as you are able for the Gospel from Mark 16, beginning at verse 1. We read in Jesus' name. When the Sabbath was passed, And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Easter. The technical and more descriptive name for this holy day is the resurrection of our Lord. It's that glorious and triumphant day when Jesus the Christ rose from the dead. Really, we're talking about a real dead guy waking up from the sleep of death and appearing to many. Really, historically, for real. This is certainly a happy thing. Imagine if something like this happened to someone close to you, someone you love dies. So you plan a funeral and start making arrangements, but before the funeral even occurs, your loved one wakes up from death and escapes from the funeral home. What a happy thing that would be. Life would be restored, but things wouldn't just go back to normal, would they? Things would be better than normal. Instead of planning a funeral, you would plan a party. It would be a real celebration of life. You would maybe even throw a party every single year to remember it. I mean, if we have birthday parties, uh, parties every year to celebrate our birthdays, I'm pretty sure we would have an annual party to celebrate someone coming back from the dead. It just seems like the right thing to do. So Jesus' resurrection is certainly a happy thing. But it's not just his family and friends from two millennia ago who had a yearly celebration. No, we're talking about probably a billion or more people all around the world celebrating this 2,000 years later. Why? I mean, what makes Jesus' resurrection so special? I mean, Jesus isn't the only person to come back from the dead. There are other people, too. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus, a little girl whose father's name was Jairus, and a widow's son. In the book of Acts, Peter raised a woman named Dorcas, and Paul raised a young man named Eutychus, who dozed off during one of his sermons and fell from a third-story window. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah raised a widow's son, and the prophet Elisha raised a young child, too. It's not like these raisings happened all the time. We can count all of them on two hands and still have a few fingers left over. So it was really big news when they did happen just like it would be really big news today. But we don't have yearly remembrances of Lazarus, Dorcas, and Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. There's something different about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, there are a few historical differences. First, Jesus prophesied, he predicted that he would be crucified and would rise again. That's certainly different. It's one thing to be raised from the dead. It's a whole other thing to talk about it before you're even dead. Second, with all those other raisings, there is always someone else involved, you know, someone else who performed the miraculous feat, whether it was Jesus, Peter, Paul, Elijah, or Elisha, there was always another person there bringing the dead person back to life. But that didn't happen with Jesus. It was by the power of God directly that Jesus was raised. We can even say he was raised by his own power. And third, while we assume that all those other people died again, Jesus didn't. You might have noticed that, if you are listening very, very carefully, you might have noticed that I referred to all those other people coming back to life as raisings, while we refer to Jesus coming back from the dead as a resurrection. I don't know if the words really mean anything different, but we try to distinguish between Jesus and all those other people, because Jesus' resurrection is permanent. He was raised from the dead, never to die again. So there are some historical differences we see between Jesus' resurrection and all those other raisings, but the primary reason why we celebrate Jesus' resurrection every year is because of what it accomplished. Now, his resurrection accomplished three things, and I, uh, I want you to write this down. If you're a confirmation student taking notes, write this down. If you don't have a pen and paper in front of you, just write it on the wrinkles of your brain and then put it on paper when you get home later. The resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished three things. First, it proved that Jesus is who he says he is, that is, the Son of God in human flesh, Second, it proved that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on Good Friday for the sins of the world. And third, it opened eternal life to all who believe in him. So first, the historical question. This is the logical place to start. If what we just read from the Gospel of Mark is true, if it actually happened, then it changes everything, right? And if it is false, then Christians are the most pitiful people in the entire world. So we should probably consider the evidence for it. On several occasions, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God in human flesh. And he also predicted numerous times that he would rise from the dead. So his resurrection is the proof that he promised. It is the proof that he is who he says he is, the Son of God in human flesh. So our faith in him is completely dependent on the historical fact of his resurrection. This is what Paul taught us in Roman, uh, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we read earlier. And by the way, if you get a chance today, and I hope you'll just make time for this, read all of 1 Corinthians 15. It's kind of a long chapter, but it's better than any Easter sermon that I can give you. And in the section we read, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the most important points of the gospel. He states four things, and you'll notice it kind of sounds like a creed. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And fourth, that he appeared to a whole bunch of people. So there there are these... Four critical events. I know we're supposed to have three of things, but Paul gives us four. Jesus died, was buried, was raised, and appeared. And when we think about these four events, we realize that two of them are really the key events, and the other two are the proof that those key events really happened. The two primary events are that he died and was raised. And these are the two events Paul says were done in accordance with the scriptures. That is, the Old Testament, because the New Testament was just beginning to be written. So the first primary event of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Then the proof that Jesus was really dead is his burial. And we think of all the different things that happened after he died. There is that spear, you know, that was thrust into his side and the blood and water flowed out. This was the crude Roman way of confirming that a crucifixion victim was really dead. Their lungs would fill up with water, and they would literally drown hanging on the cross. That's how crucifixion victims typically died. So when the spear punctures the lungs and blood and water flow out, it confirms that the crucifixion worked. The person is dead. So the Roman centurion, the executioner, confirmed for Pilate that Jesus was really dead, and then Pilate granted the corpse to a man by the name of Joseph from Arimathea, and Joseph buried him. Joseph carried the corpse, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb. This whole burial thing confirms the first part, that Jesus died. And this is important because... For a resurrection to be confirmed, first you have to confirm the death. And then the second primary event of the gospel is that he was raised on the third day. And the proof of this was that Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people. The proof of Jesus' resurrection is not limited to the empty tomb, though that is part of the proof, and it is substantial proof, especially because there were guards posted at the tomb, but the strongest proof is that Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people. Paul mentions Cephas, that is, Peter, and the rest of the twelve, except, of course, for Judas. And the names of all those disciples are written in the Gospels for us. And this is important because it identifies the eyewitnesses by name. And Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to a group of more than 500 people at one time. Now, that size of a group was way too big for it to be a hallucination or anything other than a real resurrection. And Paul mentions that most of these 500 people were still alive when he wrote 1 Corinthians. The effect of this statement is, okay, if you don't believe me, then go and ask them. Ask the people who were there and saw him, and they will tell you all about it. And then Paul mentions James, that is the half-brother of Jesus, and all the apostles. And then finally... Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And then the Gospels and and Acts give us even more names of eyewitnesses, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, Joseph, uh, who was also called Barsabbas and Justice, Matthias, and Cleopas. And it really adds up to a really long list of eyewitnesses. So I want you to imagine a a courtroom in the case of Jesus' resurrection is being tried there. And there's this big, long parade of eyewitnesses, and they all have their stories of Jesus appearing to them after he was raised from the dead. And unless you're just totally hung up on the whole miracles aren't possible thing, which is actually kind of closed-minded, the evidence would be overwhelming. You combine all that eyewitness testimony with the Romans and Jews being totally incapable of providing any evidence that he was dead, a body which they actually had in their custody, and you actually have a really slam-dunk case that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And this accomplishes three things, remember. First, it proves his claim that he is the Son of God in human flesh. And then second, his resurrection proves that God the Father accepted his sacrifice for the sins of the world. This is what we talked about last week, and if you missed last Sunday, I hope you'll go to our website and listen to the sermon from last week, uh, because this sermon really depends on that one. I can't claim it was any kind of masterpiece, uh, but last week we considered the crucifixion of Jesus, which is really the high point in Jesus' ministry, and that actually makes last week the high point of the church year. We tend to think of Christmas and Easter, right, as the high points of the church here, but that's not quite right. It was really last week. Uh, So I just want you to get caught up on that. And I guess I already gave you some homework to read 1 Corinthians 15, so we'll call this makeup work, okay? And I probably won't give you any homework next week. It'll take you 26 minutes to listen to it, but even busy people can find 26 minutes. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is really the conclusion of the crucifixion. Jesus said he was going to go to the cross to suffer and die. The purpose was to bear the sins of the world and offer himself there as a sacrifice. So then he dies on Good Friday and he's laid in a tomb and we kind of think to ourselves, did it work? If Jesus just continues to lay in the tomb, if his body never rises, but instead decomposes, and then we would kind of be left in suspense. And in fact, we would probably assume that Jesus was just full of it. He would be like the magician who saws his assistant in half and then can't put her back together. He would be an incompetent fraud. And we would conclude that our sins, in fact, are not forgiven. So the resurrection is the glorious confirmation that it worked. God the Father accepted the sacrifice and is pleased with his son, so he exalts him by raising him from the dead. The sins which he bore in his body are now gone, that is, your sins are gone, and we are truly forgiven. So the resurrection of Jesus proves the forgiveness of our sins, which he purchased for us on the cross. And then the third thing that Jesus' resurrection accomplishes, and this goes beyond proof. It actually does something substantial. It opens eternal life to all who believe in him. Since Jesus has borne the curse of sin and death in his own body, then that curse is removed, and he has opened eternal life to us through his resurrection from the dead. This means that he will give to us the exact same thing he received in his resurrection. He will give to us the resurrection from the dead. And notice that we're not using the word raising here. We're using the word resurrection. Because the scriptures promise that we will be raised like Christ. Perfect and incorruptible in both body and soul. So I want you to think about that funeral again. You know, the one that you were planning for your loved one, but we pretended it didn't happen. In our experience, those funerals always take place. They don't actually get interrupted by raisins. We take the corpses of our loved ones and we lay them in the ground. And if Jesus doesn't return in the near future, the same thing is going to happen to us. Someone will take our bodies and lay them in the ground. When that casket is lowered into the ground, that's when reality really sets in if it hadn't yet. And it kind of seems like the end of things. So we often comfort ourselves saying things like, she's in a better place now. And for the soul that falls asleep in Jesus Christ, that's true. And it is comforting to know that the soul is in the presence of Jesus But I want you to know this, that that is not really our eternal hope. That's just our temporary comfort, because our eternal hope is much better. Our eternal hope is that Jesus Christ is going to return, and he is going to call these dead bodies out of their graves. So your mother and brother and sister and husband and father and grandfather and son and daughter and so on and so on and so on, they will rise from their graves. Jesus is going to call them out, just like he did for Lazarus, Jairus's daughter, and the widow's son. But the dead will not merely be raised. All of Jesus' believing saints will be resurrected and transformed in body and in soul. And this is our eternal hope. The curse which we experience in this life will be completely reversed. Immortality and perfection will reign forever and ever. Our bodies will not suffer disease and decay, and our souls will not suffer the temptation of sin. Sin, death, and the devil, all of it will be vanquished forever, and we will have no cause for sorrow or weeping. All of this is because Jesus rose from the dead, and he lives and reigns for all eternity. His resurrection proves that he is capable of doing this, and it opens eternal life to all who trust in him. Amen. And he who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming soon. So we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.